0: Father, thank you. Uh, You are so good to us in so many ways. Uh, A few of those ways we see every day, Uh, but so many of those ways we don't even know or see how you've prayed for us, how you've worked out things um, for us ahead of time, how even tonight you're working ahead uh, that tomorrow uh, would be um, a better day for us. So thank you so much for how you love us and what you do for us. Pray tonight that your spirit would be here. He is welcome here. Please, Holy Spirit, come, uh, be our teacher, our instructor tonight. Take what is yours, your word, and apply it to each of our minds and each of our hearts, please. And we pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Um, I don't know, some of you probably have built your own home. No show of hands. Uh, Some of you know someone who has built their own home. And some of you have watched that person and said, I would never do that because the one million decisions that have to be made every day to get that home built. So, I watched a fella, um, to actually two, build a home. This was back in uh, the late 80s and early 90s. And I mean, they came to work late. They, you know, at lunchtime, they'd, they'd leave. They'd stay late working. And then they'd leave. And then they would go back to the house. And one fella, uh, this is the first time I'd ever heard this, and I just thought, um, he, he walked in this one night, and he was supposed to have, a, you know, call it whatever you want to, a living room, and in the middle of the living room wall was supposed to be a fireplace, right? That's where it would belong, in the middle of, of, of the wall of this one room. So, he goes in, and the fireplace is over here, And he, he walks in, and he picks up the drawings, <laughs> and he can't figure out what's going on, so he goes over and he talks to the, the fellow who was still there, and he said, why is the fireplace over here? According to the drawing, it's supposed to be right in the middle of the wall. And the guy looks, and he goes, hmm, well, tell you what I do. I'll, um, I'll build you a bookcase over on this side to balance it out. And my friend said, um, no. The fireplace goes in the middle, and the guy goes, look, I'd have to tear the whole fireplace out, and the chimney's in, too. And my friend said, I'm sorry, I guess you'll start on that tomorrow. (laughs) At that time, I went, never, (laughs) never build a house. So God bless you to those of you who've done it, but the distractions that I saw these two fellows go through just in, in trying to live life because of the thousands of decisions that they had to make. It was just distracting. I don't know if, you, if you've built your own house, you've been close to that. It, it's just a distracting, it's always on your brain. What are they doing? What are they not doing? <laughs> Did they do it right? Did they do it wrong? I got to follow up. There's just so many things to, to keep track of. And one of the things that can suffer is a person's walk with the Lord. When they're so busy and so distracted that kind of the first thing that can go is their quiet time or their walk with the Lord or however they spend time in, uh, in those things. So what's amazing in tonight's reading is Solomon... Is building really two national sized projects at the same time the temple and his palace. Two national sized projects. And yet his walk with the Lord has never been closer than it is in these chapters. In fact, after chapter nine, it's going to head down. But during this period of time, this is kind of like Solomon's high-water mark. He's got these projects going on, and his walk with the Lord is fantastic. And so I think there's some things that we can learn from that tonight for ourselves. So, 1 Kings, it's the book of division. Division is coming. But tonight, it's 970, or in 970, he's about 20. Solomon comes to Israel's throne. By 966, so four years later, he begins fulfilling God's calling and David's dream, building the temple. For the next seven years, Solomon is in the best place he ever gets in his walk with God. While he's building the temple, national-sized project for Israel, He's never been closer, he's never had a deeper level of relationship with God, and there's a real sense of his intimate fellowship, and God will even speak into that in chapter 9. Solomon and God are in a really, really good place, in spite of all of these distractions and the busyness that must be occupying Solomon's life. So I think there's something here for us to learn. Bottom line tonight is we all need to learn about practicing the presence of God. Uh, It's a famous book by a fellow who called himself Brother Lawrence. He wrote a book called Practicing the Presence of God. If you've never read it, another book I commend to you to read, Um, so I stole that title. But Practicing the Presence of God is what Solomon was doing and what I'm going to encourage us to do tonight also. So in the midst of he's never busier than he is in these seven years, and yet he's practicing the presence of God, we can learn from him. So we'll walk through this chapter by chapter. Chapter 5, we've got uh, Hiram who's um, happy about Solomon, and so he starts giving materials, Uh, Hiram, verse 10, supplies as much cedar and cypress timber as Solomon desired. And in return, Solomon pays him for that. And then Solomon's got all these people working. Uh, He's got some doing this, some doing the other thing. He's building uh, some of those large stones. Um, He's doing... uh, Let's see, they're preparing the timber and the stone for the temple. So he begins accumulating the materials. We get a little bit of this in chapter 5 of 1 Kings. If you go to 1 Chronicles, which is a companion passage, it's covering the same, uh, same time frame. We learn that uh, there were 188 tons of Tons of gold. Now, to just put this into perspective a little bit, let's say your car weighs two tons. Let's just say, this is now 45 cars. This parking lot, little parking lot right over here, every car, solid gold That's the amount of gold that went into this temple. On top of that, almost twice as much in silver. So, if you have 45 cars that are gold, you have closer to 90 cars that are silver. This is a lot of precious material going into the temple. There were immeasurable tons of wood, stone, and bronze. Remember when they make all the bronze stuff, the guy who casts it and he does all this stuff and he goes, "We just gave up trying to measure it. <laughs> we don't know how much bronze this guy." It's amazing. And he only uses the very best materials to make the temple. For the workers, he enlists the resident aliens and the Israelites as their supervisors. So he's got the materials, he's got the workers, and he commissions them. David had um, probably gotten the plans, like, you know, where did, remember, you can forget nothing, where did Moses get the plans for the tabernacle? From God. Probably where did David get the plans for the temple? from God, and probably gave those to Solomon. And so Solomon probably had the plans for the temple, and he, so he knew what to tell the people to do. Here's what it should look like. He added some additional rooms to it uh, to store a lot of stuff, which probably um, those might have been additions to the temple, but Solomon has thought this thing through very, very well on the, on the outside of it. So he's got all of these materials. He's got plenty of workers. And so in chapter 6, he begins building the temple. Uh, We haven't talked about this verse in a long time since the Exodus. 1 Kings 6.1. Next time you watch the History Channel, and they try to tell you the date of the Exodus... If it isn't the date that's right here, they're wrong. You say, what does 1 Kings 6:1 say? I'm so glad you asked. It's right here. It will definitely be on the final. <laughs> it was in mid-spring in the month of Ziv, during the fourth year of Solomon's reign, that he began to construct the temple of the Lord. That is the year 966. This was 480 years after the people of Israel were rescued from their slavery in the land of Egypt. Some of you are math majors. You're at least accounting people. 966 plus 480 is? 1446. They wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, so when Moses passes the baton to Joshua, it's 1406, because the Exodus occurred in 1446. It's right here. We don't have to guess when the Exodus was. We are told. It's in this, the fourth year, you say, well, wait a minute, you're you're taking that off of 970. How do you know it's 970? There is... Agreement on very few things in Old Testament history. One of the things there is agreement on is Solomon's, when Solomon took the throne. Some people would say, well, it's 971, it's 970, it's 969. Okay, I'll spot you that. It's 970. That's when he takes over. In his fourth year, it's 966. 480 years earlier, they came out in the Exodus. This is a humongously important verse for Old Testament timeline information. If you have a highlighter, don't use yellow. Use a different color because this is so important, you want to be able to find it quickly. 1 Kings 6.1. So how big is this thing? It's 90 feet long. You say 90 feet? You know, a football field is 300 feet long. This only goes to about the 30 yard line. And it's 30 feet wide and 45 feet high. It's not a gigantic structure. For the time, it was large, but in our day, not all that huge. That's a lot of gold and silver and (laughs) innumerable wood and stone going into this thing. It was a massive project as well as an uh, unbelievably important project. So we get some information and uh, all the way through about verse, well, it's all the way through 6. He talks about how big it was and the... The cedar paneling in the rooms and the, we even learned that there's five-sided doorposts. I don't know what that is. Like, what is a five-sided doorpost? I don't know. I'm going to guess it has five sides. <laughs> and it somehow holds up a door. <laughs> That's what I'm going to guess. Uh, they talk about, um, yeah, we said the cedar paneling. It takes seven years at the end of chapter 6, seven years to build The temple. It's twice the size of the tabernacle, otherwise, it's identical in proportions to it. This thing is 90 feet long, 30 feet wide, and 45 feet tall. The furnishings, everything is larger. Makes sense? It's twice the size of the tabernacle, but the sea, the bronze sea, is gigantic. And so everything is larger. And there's more of certain things. Remember, in the tabernacle, there was one lampstand. Now there's multiple lampstands, okay? He follows the blueprint of the Word of God. Uh, Moses got the tabernacle instructions in Exodus and in 1 Chronicles God gave the design to David. Curious, we already did the book of Hebrews. Um, uh, Yeah, Hebrews. When we get to Daniel, um, we will also take a night and do Revelation because you can't do one book end without the other. And you'll find in the book of the Revelation, when you read it, the first few chapters, you will see all the pieces of furniture from the temple described. Pretty amazing. So what's, what's the design for the temple or the tabernacle based on? It's based on the heavenly temple of God's. So that's why he said, you got to build it my way because this is what I want it to look like. So God has designs and he shares those to get a tabernacle built and a temple built. So in chapters 6 and 7, Solomon is building the temple. Chapter 7, verse 1, there's one of these. um, We're given a tiny foreshadowing. Solomon... It took Solomon seven years, right, the end of chapter 6. So it took seven years to build the temple. Oh, okay, seven years. That's a long time. Solomon also built a palace for himself, and it took him 13 years to complete the construction. Hmm, a little curious. (laughs) takes you seven to build the most important structure for the nation— but then it takes you longer to build your own palace. Hmm. Just, it's just supposed to rattle around in your brain right now. So chapter 7 describes a little bit of that palace and what it looked like uh, in halfway through chapter 7. We talk about the bronze things being cast. Uh, let's see, what else do we cover in chapter 7? Oh, man, he makes a lot of stuff. Amazing. This guy and his helpers, I'm assuming, were awesome in how they could cast all this bronze without it cracking. So they make all these things, the gold, uh, the decorations out of bronze. So the end of chapter 7, So King Solomon finished all his work on the temple of the Lord. Then he brought all the gifts his father David had dedicated, the silver, the gold, and various articles, and he stored them in the treasuries of the Lord's temple. So Solomon is building the temple, foreshadowing he's building his palace, and we can get a little look at that, but he is going to finish the Lord's temple. What do you do when you finish a building? you celebrate it. And so he invites the elders and other people come to dedicate, celebrate the opening of the temple. Big deal that's going to happen here. So Solomon, chapter 8, verse 1, "...Solomon then summoned to Jerusalem the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the ancestral families of the Israelites." They were to bring the Ark of the… they were not, but the Ark of the Covenant was to be brought from its location in the city of David, also known as Zion. So all the men of Israel assembled before King Solomon at the annual festival of shelters, which is held in early autumn in the month of Ethanim. So when they get there, the priests pick up the Ark. Good. (laughs) Good. Good, they're not repeating that mistake when they got it from the Philistines. So they've got the right people carrying the Ark of the Lord's Covenant into the inner sanctuary of the temple, the most holy place, or the Holy of Holies. They placed it beneath the wings of the cherubim. Remember, they made the two giant cherubim that went into the Holy of Holies. And remember how big their wings were? Each one was 15 feet and so, two 15s makes a 30. So, these two would have gone end to end in this room. A lot of people think the room was actually a perfect cube. It was 30 by 30 by 30, and that maybe the other part was 45. Okay, I, I'm, I'm good with that. Uh, and they think the reason it was a cube was to reflect the Trinity. There's three equal, three equal dimensions Okay, that's great. Love it. We'll see some more of that kind of um, equality in other, other books. Uh, so, when all the elders of Israel arrived, the priests picked up the ark. The priests and the Levites brought up the ark of the Lord along with the special tent and all the sacred items that had been in it there before the ark. King Solomon and the entire community of Israel sacrificed so many sheep, goats, and cattle that no one could keep count. That's a lot. Then the priests carried the Ark of the Lord's Covenant into the inner sanctuary of the temple, the most holy place, and placed it beneath the wings of the cherubim. The cherubim spread their wings over the ark, forming a canopy over the ark and carrying its poles. There are some psalms that say we are safe under the shelter of his wings. Where would they have gotten that idea? Right here. These poles were so long that their ends could be seen from the temple's main room, so from the holy place, but not from the outside because they were supposed to leave the poles in place in the Ark of the Covenant. They are still there to this day. Nothing was in the Ark except the two stone tablets that Moses had placed in it at Mount Sinai where the Lord made a covenant with the people of Israel when they left the land of Egypt. So what happened to the jar of manna and Aaron's budded rod? I don't know. This is all that was left in the ark by the time it gets into the temple. When the priests came out of the holy place, a thick cloud filled the temple of. The oh, oh yeah. I got to talk about another cherubim thing. Okay, this is really interesting. When you read the resurrection stories and some of the disciples go into the actual tomb, in one account, they find... What What do they find in there? A couple of angels sitting there. Could it be because, in a sense, this was <laughs> the place where the Lord was and there are angels there protecting it, like back here in the temple? I don't know. It's just really, hmm, wonder why... <laughs> If they, I don't know, maybe they don't have wings. Maybe they do. But if they've got wings and they're sitting in there when the disciples go in, wow, The God has broken out of the holy of holies, the Lord Jesus in his resurrection. He's out, which is the whole point, right? In the, in the temple, you can't go in. You cannot approach him. In the resurrection, he's out, <laughs> He goes out. Oh, so good. Think about it. it Maybe crazy, but it might, uh, it might also be true. Okay. Where are we? I don't know. Uh, oh, yeah. When the priests came out of the holy place, a thick cloud filled the temple of the Lord. The priests could not continue their service because of the cloud, for the glorious presence of the Lord filled the temple. Wow. When's the last time the cloud came down to be with Israel? Exodus chapter 40. Remember one of those chapters you're supposed to remember, the big chapters in Exodus? We had chapter 12, that was... Okay. You all have got some work to do. (laughs) Then Solomon prayed... And he goes on, he's got this marvelous, marvelous prayer. Solomon prayed, O Lord, you have said that you would live in a thick cloud of darkness. Now I have built a glorious temple for you, a place where you can live forever. Then the king turned around to the entire community of Israel standing before him and gave this blessing. Praise the Lord, the God of Israel who has kept the promise he made to my father David. For he told my father, from the day I brought my people Israel out of Egypt, I have never chosen a city among any of the tribes of Israel as the place where a temple should be built to honor my name. But I have chosen David to be king over my people Israel. And Solomon goes on with this amazing, marvelous prayer for chapter 8. It's an amazing prayer. Um, it's, worth your, it's worth your meditation. It's worth your study. It's worth your just reading through it several times. The, the point of it is God has come to dwell with his people. Uh, in the book of Ezekiel, he's going to leave them. The cloud that came here is going to get up and leave. And nobody sees him go. Everybody sees him come. (laughs) But by the time Ezekiel is writing in the exile, right before the exile, God says, see you. I'm leaving. And he leaves town. He, he, He leaves the temple. So, God's presence enters the temple, and Solomon prays that God would keep his eyes on the temple and keep his ears attentive to his people's prayers, and that God would answer the people who pray as they pray toward the temple. Okay, what does that mean? Uh, It means... He's asking God that as they turn to the temple and look at it, that God would answer the prayers. That's what it means. Well, why does Daniel face in a certain direction when he prays? Because he's praying toward the temple because he wants, he's hoping that God will answer his prayer. Now, we haven't gotten to Daniel yet, but there's putting together some, some facilities, some geography in your brain, and you run across these little things like, so Daniel made sure he prayed in a certain direction, and he'll say he prayed toward the temple in Jerusalem. And you go, why would he do that? This is why he would do that. <laughs> because Solomon asked God, when someone prays toward your temple, please hear and please answer their prayer. That's why Daniel does it. Daniel knows the Word of God very, very well. So Solomon prays these things, recognizing that God would reward the obedient with blessing and He would discipline the disobedient, he says as he moves on through chapter 8, all in accordance with His covenant, which is chapter 28 through 30 in Deuteronomy. So God will reward those who are obedient, he will discipline those who are disobedient, and he, his discipline includes uh, disease, um, famine, no rain, uh, death, disasters, and finally the final discipline on God's people is deportation which he finally does when he sends them off to Babylon. And so Deuteronomy 28 through 30, as we've talked about before, uh, is a key, key set of chapters in the Old Testament. It's the backbone. It tells you, as part of the Abrahamic covenant, tells you why God is doing what he's doing. So he's, Solomon is praying in accordance with the covenant which is a good thing for him to pray according to. He finishes in chapter 8. He's dedicated the people. uh, Sorry, he's dedicated the building. And then in verse 54, he's going to dedicate the people. And so we've got a few verses in here. When Solomon finished making these prayers and petitions to the Lord, he stood up in front of the altar of the Lord where he had been kneeling with his hands raised toward heaven. He stood and in a loud voice blessed the entire congregation of Israel. Praise the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel just as he promised. Not one word has failed of all the wonderful promises he gave through his servant Moses. May the Lord our God be with us as he was with our ancestors. May he never leave us or abandon us. That sounds oddly familiar, doesn't it? Like Hebrews chapter 13. You will never leave us or forsake us. Where would the writer get that idea? Oh, I don't know. Maybe right here. May he give us the desire to do his will in everything and to obey all the commands, decrees, and regulations that he gave our ancestors. And may these words that I have prayed in the presence of the Lord be before him constantly, day and night, So that the Lord our God may give justice to me and to his people Israel according to each day's needs. Don't worry about tomorrow because each day will take care of itself. Hmm. I think those are some of the red words. Then people all over the earth will know that the Lord alone is God and there is no other And may you be completely faithful to the Lord our God. May you always obey his decrees and commands, just as you are doing today. Then the king and all Israel with him offered sacrifices to the Lord. Solomon offered to the Lord a peace offering of 22,000 cattle and 120,000 sheep and goats. Again, that's a lot. And so the king and all the people of Israel dedicated the temple of the Lord. That same day, the king consecrated the central area of the courtyard in front of the Lord's temple. He offered burnt offerings, grain offerings, and the fat of peace offerings there because the bronze altar in the Lord's presence was too small to hold all the burnt offerings, grain offerings, and the fat of the peace offerings. Man, what a party... Then Solomon and all Israel celebrated the festival of shelters in the presence of the Lord our God. A large congregation had gathered from as far away as Lebo Hamath in the north and the brook of Egypt in the south. People are, Israel is coming from every nook and cranny. The celebration went on for 14 days in all, seven days for the dedication of the altar and seven days for the festival of shelters. After the festival was over, Solomon sent the people home. They blessed the king and went to their homes joyful and glad because the Lord had been good to his servant David and to his people Israel. So Solomon dedicates, he blesses the temple, and then he blesses and dedicates the people. They have a God whose promises have never failed. And Solomon asks that they, the people, remember, he asked for himself to have a hearing heart. He prays for the people to have a hearing heart also, and they would follow and obey the Lord. God answers Solomon's prayer with fire, as he did with Moses four hundred and eighty years earlier, and that comes to us from Second Chronicles. Amazing! What what a pooh! What a day! What a day that Israel was celebrating, and God shows up again. So then the people celebrate, and that's where they celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, which celebrates the Lord's care for them in the wilderness wanderings. They celebrate with peace offerings. Remember, part is dedicated to God and the priests, and the other part is retained for the one making the offering so that they can have basically a fellowship meal with God. Kind of like the one, if you were here today, the one you took today. A fellowship meal with God. The Lord is appropriately right now at this time at the center of his nations and his people's hearts. He's right there in the middle of everything that they're thinking about, everything they're longing for. He's in. He's at home right now where he should be. So then, chapter 9, so Solomon finished building the temple of the Lord as well as the royal palace. He completed everything he had planned to do. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time as he had done before at Gibeon. The Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your petition. I have set this temple apart to be holy. This place you have built Where my name will be honored forever. I will always watch over it, for it is dear to my heart. As for you, if you will follow me with integrity and godliness as David your father did, obeying all my commands, decrees, and regulations, then I will establish the throne of your dynasty over Israel forever. For I made this promise to your father David one of your descendants will always sit on the throne of Israel. 2 Samuel 7, the Davidic covenant. But if you or your descendants abandon me and disobey the commands and decrees I have given you, and if you serve and worship other gods, then I will uproot Israel from this land that I have given them. I will reject this temple that I have made holy to honor my name. I will make Israel an object of mockery and ridicule among the nations. And though this temple is impressive now, all who pass by will be appalled and will shake their heads in amazement. They will ask, why did the Lord do such terrible things to this land and to his temple? And the answer will be, because his people abandoned the Lord their God who brought their ancestors out of Egypt and they worshiped other gods instead and bowed down to them. That is why the Lord has brought all these disasters on them. And so God appears to Solomon again, and he says, I will continue to be with you. That's his promise. Dedicate yourself to me, walk in my presence every day. That required Solomon's obedience to God's promise. But remember what will happen if you don't. And so God also gives him a warning. So here's my promise, if you'll obey, you'll be blessed. If you disobey, you will be disciplined up to the point where I will send Israel packing and I will turn over this temple to someone else. Great. Such great chapters God is speaking with Solomon during the busiest time of his life, but Solomon has found a way to still walk with and draw close to God. They have a wonderful relationship. So four summary observations. This seven-year stretch is the best it ever gets for Solomon's relationship with the Lord. He's fully aware that he's doing God's work. He knows that. He's mindful of God's worth, so he gives only the best for his name and his work. From his prayers, if you'll read his prayers, you really will be enriched by reading Solomon's prayer, he's steeped himself in God's word, especially Deuteronomy. And God's presence, power, and promise-keeping are the axis around which Solomon's worship and prayer revolve. So his presence, power, and promise-keeping is the, the rod, and everything else that Solomon is doing is revolving around that central axis, that, that rod. All of this while building Two, at least two. He built some walls and he built some other things too. But at least two giant national level projects. So let's talk about practicing the presence of God. One of the things it seems Solomon did not fall into, which I don't know about you, but I can, uh, when I get busy, I can begin to compartmentalize. You understand what I'm saying? And what box does God get put into? I'm not asking you. What box does He get put into? Does He get put into Sunday from 11 to 12? Does He get put into a a men's Bible study or a women's Bible study as well as Sunday worship? What boxes does God get put into when you get busier and busier We just tend to compartmentalize. Solomon somehow didn't seem to do that. So it's one of those things that I think we can really learn from him in practicing the presence of God. So I'm going to give you four daily practices that I think uh, could be helpful. So daily practice one has to do with Work Every day Solomon was mindful that he was engaged in God's work. Whatever you're doing certainly is your work, but whose work is it really? It's God's work. You're not doing your work, you're doing His work, whatever work you're doing. You say, well, I'm not doing much work these days. Whatever work you're doing is God's work. It's not your work. Your work, now none of you are really like this, but you'll understand the illustration. Your work is you punch in at 9 o'clock and you punch out at 5 o'clock and the rest of the time is yours. And at 4.30, you begin to start thinking about 5 o'clock. And on Friday, you begin to think about Friday and, uh, Saturday and Sunday because that's your time. That's compartmentalizing. Number one is every day, whatever work you're doing that day is not your work. It's God's work, and he's asking you to work as unto him on that day. So every day Solomon was mindful that he was engaged in God's work. What do I mean mindful? He seems to have carried a conscious awareness that what he was doing was God's work. Some days you might feel like you're doing God's work. Some days you might feel like I am not doing God's work. Guess what? The days you're not feeling like it, you are. You're doing God's work. We were redeemed to serve God, Ephesians 2. We need to be sensitive and responsive to His Spirit's leading with the warning that the Spirit can be grieved and the Spirit can be quenched again, from Ephesians and from First Thessalonians. We need, to be, we need to remind ourselves each day that we're engaged in God's work. Whatever it is you're doing, the rest of tonight, tomorrow, is God's work. Otherwise, He would take you home. Why would He leave you here? If He doesn't have any work for you to do, What the heck, (laughs) right? Paul said, it's better for me to go, but I'll stay for you. You're doing his work. If he's giving you a heartbeat tomorrow and breath in your lungs, you're doing his work tomorrow, whatever that work is, which is why in Colossians, Paul says, work as whatever you do, work as unto the Lord, because it's his work, not your work. So, first daily practice is be mindful that you're engaged in God's work. What does that mean? You know what that means. First, behave like a believer. Second, be aware, sensitive, of who those divine conversations that God may be bringing into your orbit tomorrow. And you think, I don't have time to talk to that person. Wait, this is God's work. This is not your work. This is God's work. What needs to happen? I'm not saying so you drop it and you talk to that person, but maybe you have to schedule a time to talk to that person. Or maybe you can drop everything and talk. I don't know. Just remember, whatever you're doing tomorrow is not your work. It's God's work. Be mindful tomorrow that you're doing God's work. How will you do that? Let's say you have to drive somewhere. How might you be able to do that? Get in the car. However you turn your car on, maybe you need to talk to yourself. Lord, today, keep my mind, keep me mindful that today I'm doing your work. I don't know who I'll run into. I don't know what situation I'll encounter, but I'm doing your work today you please walk with me? Just get yourself mindfully oriented. Maybe then if you have to walk in a building, what are you going to say? Lord, as I cross the threshold of this, keep me mindful that today I'm doing your work. Your work. So that's daily practice one. Remember, you are doing God's work, not just your own work. Daily practice number two. I know you believe it. Every day Solomon was mindful of God's worth and so gave only his best for his name and his work. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 3, we can build with wood, hay, or stubble, or gold, silver, and jewels. And the day, meaning when we see Jesus, he will test What we did, if it burns, we suffer loss. If it's made out of gold, silver, or jewels, it will survive because it's been passed through the test of fire. So what will you do tomorrow? How will you demonstrate God's worth in what you're doing? How can you offer Him your best, not your leftovers? You say... Well, okay. God remember God also looks at the heart. I don't like this part, but remember he he knows what's in our heart. So you might be kind to that person who's just been mean to you at work, but if you're doing it like this in your heart, you <laughs> mm, might have to take that one to the Lord <laughs> and say, "I'm just I want I want to be Christ-like to this person." That's hard, hard work. Number two, with that, you can't change it. That's in the area that is the domain of the Holy Spirit. And so what do you need to do? Ask Him to do the work that only He can do in your heart. You, as Cody said today, you need Him. <laughs> you need God. I cannot like Him. I'm not even talking about love. I can't even like that co-worker. But Jesus would love them. How can he do that? I don't know, but he says he'll give it to me. He says, I can have the fruit of the Spirit. Remember, we've talked about this. Love. Oh, gosh, why does that have to lead the list? He can help me love someone. I don't love them, but he does. So he has to love them through me. So he has to be at work in my heart to bring change. Guess what? That's not going to happen in three seconds or 30 minutes. It's going to take time. So we can build with wood, hay, or stubble, or gold, silver, and jewels. In light of God giving his best for us in Jesus Christ... Doesn't he deserve our best today? For instance, in time, talent, and treasure. We need to remind ourselves each day that God deserves our best today. Our best today. Your best one day might not be the same best as the next day, but you give God your best every day. So think about... Your work is really His work. Think about His worth. Yes, there will be two more W's. Makes it easier to remember. There's going to be four. Four W's. Daily practice number three. Solomon's prayers revealed a deep knowledge of God and His Word. We can't be mindful or consciously aware of what or who. We don't know. The Word of God is our spiritual food. I would suggest eating daily. The sermon notes are one great resource. Not only the front side, but the back side. Somebody in this room writes all the questions for the small group leaders. Yes, it's large. If you say, I heard Cody's sermon, flip it over on the back. You're going to have another five to ten questions that you could work through for the whole week if you'd like to. They're good questions. I see them. (laughs) They're good. The Word of God is our spiritual food. We've got to stay in it. You know, somebody asked me one time, they're like, well, so what do you pray for? And I said, you know, I used to have a lot of lists, you know, know, pray for these people and pray for this and this, and I still have those lists, especially people who are hurting, they're in the hospital, et cetera. Um, But what I've started praying for way more the past couple of years is how do I, it's kind of like what Cody brought up this morning in the idea of gratitude, how do I pray, praise God for who He is? Not for what he's done, right? My prayer lists were, thank you for doing this for me, please do that, please do this other thing, and it's more about a transactional kind of relationship. What if I just want to pray, praise him? Do I know him well enough to be able to do that? There's one interesting little verse in Jeremiah where the Lord is unhappy with his people And he lists four things that they have not talked to him about. One is his unfailing love. Two, the peace he provides for them. Three, the protection he provides for them. And four, his great mercy toward them. You understand what praying who God is instead of asking him? Lord, this morning, I just want to remember your unfailing love to me. Who, who is like you? Who loves me with an unfailing love? Who loves me this way? No one but you. Wouldn't that be a great way to pray to God? I'm not saying that you don't ever ask. He said, come ask me for things. But wouldn't that enhance your prayers? It's enhanced mine. So I encourage you to maybe think about some things like that. Pray praise to God for who He is, not just what He's done, but for who He is. Would you trade, remember when we went through uh, Joshua and we talked about Romans 5, 6, 7, 8, would you trade, remember uh, Romans chapter 5, in the beginning, um, Paul talks about the peace we now have with God, the new peace in which we now stand in our relationship with God that he's made possible through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Would you trade that peace with God for anything? How long has it been since you've just said, thank you for the peace you've given me? Unbelievable. The world is searching for this, and I have it. I'm standing in your peace. And I can't, I can't get out of it because you've placed me here. Amazing, this peace with you that I now have. How important is that to us? And might we pray praise to God for that. We need to be swimming, immersed in God's Word each day. Final daily practice is one of worship. I talk with people all the time. and They say, I love our worship service. I said, I'm, I'm so glad. I love them too. I said, how's your weekly worship? Oh, yeah, I love Sundays. No. How do you, how's your worship every day? Disconnect. No, 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 I have to come here to worship. No. No. You are to be a worshiper. Not just come to worship, but be a worshiper. How do I do that? God's presence, power, and promise-keeping were the axis of Solomon's worship. Everything revolved around that axis. Walk each day in grace, no longer looking toward a temple, but toward Jesus Christ. Turn to him first in prayer. Offer praise for who he is what he has done, and what he is doing. Do you know what God is doing in your life? You say to me, well, in Sunday school, when they asked me that question, the right answer was always Jesus. And so Jesus doesn't fit right now. So hmm, do I know what God is doing in my life? I'm going to say no (laughs) because I think that's the right answer. That's not the right answer. Yes, you do know what God is doing in your life. He's making you more and more into the image of Jesus Christ, and God is good and only does good and is only thinking of good to do on your behalf, not to you, (laughs) toward you. You know what God is doing in your life. He is working out good. Remember, I work all things for good For those who love me and are called according to my purpose. What is God doing in your life? He's working good for you. You say, well, I'm not in a good place. I'm I'm sorry. He's working good, and he can take even bad, awful, horrible, and turn it for good. How? I don't know. I'm not God. But I do know he's working for good in your life. That's what he says he's doing. He's doing. If you say he's not working this for good in my life, then what are you saying about God? I know when I've said that before. You're not, this is not good, Lord. You're not working good in my life. I'm calling him a liar. That's not good. <laughs> he doesn't deserve that because he's not a liar. I need to offer praise for who he is, what he's done and what he's doing. He is working good for me in my life. And helping me, day by day, become a little bit more like the most wonderful person he knows, the Lord Jesus. We need to have our lives revolve each day around praise, the praise of and prayer to God in worship. Four W's, drawing close in busy times. Each day, walk in conscious awareness that you're engaged in and ready, willing, and available to do God's work. Each day, offer God your best because He's worth it. Determine to offer Him no leftovers. Each day, saturate yourself in God's Word. And each day, keep God as the axis of your life and activities through an ongoing conversation of praise and prayer called worship. Worship Him daily. For next time, read Ecclesiastes. Root for the chiefs. Read Ecclesiastes. That'll be good. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word, thank you for your Holy Spirit, thank you for the Lord Jesus. Um, We want to be the first uh, this evening to say to you how grateful we are for your unfailing love that you pour out on us without limit, without end. You are a God of unfailing love, and you shower us. You lavish on us your unfailing love. You're a God of great mercy. Your mercies are new every morning. And even every day when we do try our best and offer you our best, the rest of the day we have to give over to you believing and trusting that you will extend mercy toward us. Thank you for this peace in which we now stand with you because of the finished work of your Son. Uh, It is a most blessed place, and we never want to overlook it or take it for granted. Thank you for this peace in which we now stand. And thank you for the protection that you give us you, you said through the Lord in his high priestly prayer, you protect us through your name. Not just any name, but your name protects us, keeps us safe in so many different ways, a few ways every day we see, most of the ways I'm sure we don't. Thank you for the protection that you give to us. We love you. We thank you for just these few things this evening, knowing there are thousands more things we could say we're grateful to you for. Um, I pray this week you would really begin to help some of this sink into each one of us, and we would really begin to walk just a little bit more deeply and closely with you over these next couple of weeks. We love you, and we thank you, and we pray for all these things in Jesus' name, amen.